Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. It's on page 1002. If you're using the church Bible, Hebrews 3, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 19 as we continue on in this series uh, we titled We See Jesus. The book of Hebrews is probably the deepest uh, theologically of all the books of the Bible, and yet one of those books that a lot of Christians, even seasoned Christians, maybe haven't spent as much time in. Um, we are working our way through this, and we are in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open, reading along with me as we look at this together. Let's again go to God before we do and pray and ask his blessing on the reading and preaching and hearing of his word this morning. Father, we look to you this morning in faith. We wait on your word. We thank you that you have spoken when your word has been read. We thank you that you will speak again. We thank you that you are the living God and that your word is a living word that abides forever, that's sharper than any two-edged sword and that pierces even the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and is a, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And, O oh God, we pray that you would give us attentiveness. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would make us to feel the weight of what we'll hear this morning. There would be no one here that takes lightly the things that are uh, proclaimed from the scriptures. We pray that you would enable us to see Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we, we thank you that you are risen and reigning and that you still speak from heaven. And we pray that your voice would shake not only the earth but also the heavens. We pray, O oh God, that... We would know that you are in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7, the writer has just compared Jesus with Moses and has shown how much better Jesus was than Moses, fulfillment of all things in the God-man Jesus. And now he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go stray in their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you got up today and you categorized all the things you had to do today and thought through your day and thought through your schedule and said, what do I have to do today? And maybe one of those things was get into church and get out as quick, get away from Nick as fast as you can and 
get on with your day and go eat lunch somewhere and then maybe you're going to take a nap because I like to take naps on Sunday and you've scheduled that and then you're going to spend time with other people and maybe you're going to go out somewhere and, and I'm sure that most of us have thought through what we have to do today. But I wonder how many of us have thought through what God tells us is the most important thing we have to do today, and that is hear his voice with a believing heart. The writer of Hebrews is going to set before us in this text some of the deepest and the most profound use of the Old Testament in the New Testament, in all of Scripture. There are depths here. There are depths here. And what he's going to do is he's going to take Psalm 95, written by David, and he's going to implant it into Hebrews 3. And he's going to say, the most important thing that you and I could do today is to listen to the voice of Jesus and to believe what he says and to act in faith and to obey him. And that there's a danger, as we've seen all through this book, there's warnings. We saw that warning in chapter 2 that there was a danger lest we drift away from the gospel. The gospel, the the great salvation, what Jesus did at Calvary, that great news of a crucified and risen Savior, that, that great news of sins forgiven, pardon for guilty sinners, that great news of reconciliation with the God that men by nature don't know, that great news of free grace and redemption, all because of what Jesus did. And there's a danger that you drift away. There's a danger. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to do now is he's going to pick up on one of the greatest warnings in the Old Testament, and he's going to say, listen, everything in the Old Testament was written for you. Everything in the Old Testament was written for you. Everything that happened to Israel was for you. Everything that the psalmist wrote was for you. New covenant saints, new covenant believers, those in the covenant community, it's all for you. And what we're called to do is to take heed when we hear the voice of the Son of God in the scriptures, when we read what the Holy Spirit is saying, we are to listen attentively. It's the most important thing that you could do today. You know, the Bible often says, who knows what a day may bring? Um, Don't think about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring. What's your life? It's a vapor. You don't know that you're going to wake up. You don't know that you're going to make it through the day. God holds your breath in his hand. He owns all your ways. You don't know. And so the writer, looking back in Psalm 95, notice there in verse 7, says, Today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see uh, the voice of Christ heard. And then secondly, we're going to see the warning against a hard heart. And then finally, an exhortation of faith. Notice there in verse 7, that the writer of Hebrews is now transitioning from this comparison between Jesus and Moses, and, and the Hebrews are in danger of going back to Judaism and departing from Jesus because it would be easier, it would be easier not to follow this despised uh, Savior. It would be easier not to follow, follow a man who everybody hated, who the world hates. The world hates Jesus, the world hates people that follow Jesus. Men by nature are God's enemies. The Bible's very clear about that. And notice that the writer of Hebrews is saying to a people who are in danger of departing from Jesus, he's saying to them in verse 7, the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a warning to the covenant community. Now, notice what he does, though. He actually starts by saying that the scripture is God speaking, that the scripture is God speaking. The scripture is not a dry and dead book. It's not just writings of men. If it was just writings of men, more people would read it. I was watching this week, a, uh, an anchorman 
who was out interviewing people getting off the boat that landed in Alabama, off the ship, and it was interesting. There was a girl who was telling um, the reporter what had brought her through everything, and she, she started to quote Joshua 1.9, be strong and of good courage, I'm, I'm with you, don't be afraid. She couldn't even quote it, she said, Joshua 1.9 got me through this, and it says, and he said, okay, that's it, all right, well, thank you and didn't let her finish scripture. Why do people do that? Because they know that the scripture has convicting power. They know that God is speaking. They know that God's speaking. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, actually, when he takes Psalm 95, he's actually taking something written a thousand years before Hebrews is written, and he's saying the Holy Spirit says presently. Psalm 95. Notice that. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 is Psalm 95, And he's taking a portion of that psalm, and he says, the Holy Spirit says today, he still speaks. When the scripture's read, God is speaking. It's the living word of the living God. It is as if you heard his voice audibly when you read the Bible. And everything that we read, Old and New Testament, reveals Jesus, and it reveals the great salvation, and it reveals the promises of God. And here in Psalm 95, there's a very specific word for us. It's a word from the third person of the Godhead about the second person of the Godhead. Notice who's speaking in Psalm 95. He doesn't say, as David said, we all know David wrote Psalm 95. Everybody is aware that David was the human author. But the writer of Hebrews says the Holy Spirit says. He, in a sense, brushes aside the human authorship. And this is a very powerful argument for those that say the Bible is just the word of men. Very powerful. The book of Hebrews, all the introductions are God says. The Spirit says, the Spirit said through David. Very powerful argument. Human authorship almost doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter. God is speaking. Psalm 95. I want to read to you something one of my favorite writers said. In the epistle to the Hebrews, God is everywhere represented as the speaker in the Old Testament. Only one passage, Hebrews 4, 7, names the human instrument. And even there it says, God said in David. The author goes so far as to say that it matters little who the human author may have been. The main thing is that God said it. Of course, the author of Hebrews, thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament, knew who said these things, but he doesn't name them. You see, there's depths here. There's depths. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Psalm 95 and the words of it, and they are just as active and living today as they were when they rolled off the pen of David. And they are just as relevant to you and me as they were for the generation that received it in the days of David. And notice what David does. It's actually very interesting what King David does when he's, he's reflecting back on Israel's history. He's reflecting back on the Exodus. He's, he's thinking back about that first generation that was brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness to the mountain where God gave his word and his law and everywhere that first generation was complaining and grumbling. These were not pagans. This was the covenant community. These were not people outside the church. If you're outside the church, I'm speaking right now to those in the church who are baptized, who are members of a local church. First, I'm speaking to you and I'm saying, this is written to a covenant community who was hardening their hearts against God. Notice what, notice what Psalm 95 says today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in 
the rebellion in the days of testing in the wilderness. And notice, notice what the substance of what is being said. It's that Christ was speaking. It's really powerful. The last subject in Hebrews 3 was Jesus. He's the last subject. Jesus is better than Moses if you hear his voice. Whose voice? Jesus' voice. If you hear Jesus' voice, don't harden your heart. When did Jesus speak? Back through David. Jesus wasn't alive till a thousand years after David. You might be saying, how is that possible? How could Jesus have spoken through David? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh, who spoke to Israel, was the triune God. That means everything that Yahweh said, Christ said. Christ was speaking. Notice what he says. If you hear his voice, they heard the voice of Christ. They had the promises. Israel had the gospel. Do you understand that? Israel had the gospel. They had the gospel in all kinds of types and shadows. They had the Passover lamb, the bloody Passover lamb. That was a picture of God's judgment passing over his people when the blood of Jesus would be shed. They had the sacrificial system. They had the goat that was sent into the wilderness. That was a picture of our sins being placed on Jesus and carried away from the presence of God. They had the picture of the birds slain on the altar. In that sense, all of the guilt and transgression going away from you, going away from you. They had, and this is the big one here, the rock in the wilderness. They had the rock that waters gushed out of. Supernaturally, God made water come out of a rock twice in Israel's wilderness journeying. And you would think Israel saw all that. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw God bring them through on dry land as a new creation. Water separate. Dry land appears. They're a new creation. They come out. They see the gospel in the Exodus, and they grumble, and they complain, and they don't believe God. They have the word of Christ. They have the symbols. They have the type. They have the gospel. They have it as much. You hear the gospel almost every week here at New Covenant. They had as much gospel as you did. And they had the voice of Jesus. I want you, as members of this church, to reflect on whether or not you are listening to the voice of Jesus in Scripture. Are you you hearing his voice? When you read the Scriptures, are you thinking about your need for a Redeemer? Are you searching the Scriptures diligently? Are you hungering for them? Are you feeding your soul with the scriptures? In a minute, I'm going to tell you that one of the surest ways to harden your heart and to drift away is not to do that. Do nothing. You will drift away. That's one of the surest ways we will harden our hearts is not to listen to the voice of Jesus. Front and center in this entire passage is Jesus's voice, his promises, his gospel, that God is good, that he is full of goodness and mercy and pardon, and that what, at the end of the day, when we shut our ears to Jesus, we are shutting our ears to sins forgiven. We are shutting our ears to the goodness of God. We are saying, I don't want a good God. I want to think of him as a harsh God. I want to think of him as a mean God. I want to think of him as a slave master. I want to work to stand before him. I don't want to think of him as a good God. And the scripture everywhere says the voice of God is the voice of mercy and pardon for those who will come to Jesus Christ. And Israel had his voice. They had the promises. They had the prophets. They had Moses, who was himself a picture of Jesus Christ. They had the sacrificial system. They had everything. They had everything. And so 
The first thing we want to say is that we must listen to Christ's voice and notice the important word in this whole text. If you forget everything else, don't miss this, is the word today. Notice there in verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice. Now, that word is going to be lifted out today, and it's going to be set all through chapter 3 and 4. Notice notice down in verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today today and then notice again in verse 15 as it is said today if you will hear his voice and then over in chapter 4 notice this in verse 7 again he appoints a certain day today saying through david so long afterwards in the words quoted today if you will hear his voice the most significant thing in this passage and the biggest thing that you and i need is to hear jesus's voice today and tomorrow, the biggest thing that you're going to need in your schedule when you write out what you got to do, you need to hear Jesus' voice tomorrow when tomorrow is today. Today, you see there's an abiding significance to this word in relationship to the voice of Jesus. Every day that God gives you life and breath and all things will be today. And on that day, you need to listen to the voice of Jesus. It's not sufficient. Let me say this. It's not sufficient to say, you know, I remember years ago, I was really interested in the things of the Lord. I really enjoyed listening to preaching. I really enjoyed reading my Bible, but I don't today. That would be a bad sign. That's why there's this abiding significance in the call to listen to his voice today, to hear his voice today. Well, the writer obviously is is warning against the danger of not listening. And notice there in verse 8, secondly, he gives this warning against a hard heart. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then notice again in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The biggest thing you need to be concerned about is not some particular sin in your life. Can I say that as emphatically as I can today? The biggest thing that you need to be concerned about is not some big particular sin in your life. It is the entire heart that God has given you, the entire inner person that God has given you, your demeanor towards him, your nature. By nature, we have hard hearts. Our hearts are like stone. The Bible says God takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. The biggest thing we need to do is not try to fight against one particular sin, but to get a humble, broken heart before God. And that's what the writer's emphasizing. He doesn't talk about any particular sin. He talks about the heart, and he says that at its very core, the most important thing, I think Charles Spurgeon said this, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, that what's going on in your heart. You know, unbelievers always say, God knows my heart. Yeah, that's the problem. God does know your heart. That's the problem. We, by nature, have filthy, black, evil hearts. All of us, by nature. All of us. And God knows the depths He knows the depths in ways we don't know. He knows when our hearts are hard, when we sometimes don't realize that they're hard. He knows every part of the fabric of our being inside and out. He formed us in our mother's womb. He knows what we are. He knows that we're fallen in Adam. He knows everything that's wrong with us. He knows the heart of man, and that's the problem. And so the Holy Spirit warns that we, like Israel, don't harden our hearts as in the rebellion. Now, it's interesting when he starts to unpack the idea of hard hearts, he goes back to Israel coming out of Egypt, and early on in their, their wilderness journey 
in Exodus 17, they come to a place that gets called Massa and Meribah, rebellion and bitterness, because there they complain and they say, we don't have any water. What did God bring us out here to die? I can't believe God delivered us from bondage so we could die in the wilderness. And they forgot that God split the sea. They forgot that God poured out his plagues and just wrath and anger on Egypt, who was oppressing his people. They forgot that God already turned the bitter water into sweet water through the tree that was thrown in in Exodus 15. They saw his power, they saw his miracles, and they didn't think God was good. And their evil heart was an evil heart of unbelief, and they doubted that God was good, and they doubted that God cared about them, and they doubted that God wanted to provide for them, and they doubted that God could provide for them. And so the hardness of their heart was not just a hardness and an inclination to one particular sin. It was a doubting the goodness of God. Now, you may say, that doesn't seem very severe. It doesn't seem very, that doesn't seem very serious to doubt the goodness of God. It is an insult to his glory. Unbelief is actually the greatest sin. It's greater than murder. It's greater than adultery. Unbelief is an attack on the truthfulness and the character and the uprightness of the true and living God. Unbelief says, God isn't God. I'll determine who God is. I'll make God into my own image. I don't think God's like that. You don't get to decide what God's like. God tells us what he's like in the scriptures. God tells us who he is. He tells us, I'm a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and tender mercies, yet by no means clearing the guilty. A just God and a savior. He tells us that he is a God who stands ready to forgive, ready to pardon, full of goodness, overflowing in blessing. In fact, he comes into the world in Jesus. God comes and you want to see how good God is, you look at Jesus. And he says, come to me and drink. All you who are heavy laden, come without money, without price, buy wine and milk, drink, let your soul live. Come to me, I'll give you rest for your souls. That is a picture of the goodness and the mercy of God. And that's what Israel hardened their hearts to. And that's what we're in danger, always, as a covenant community, always in danger of hardening our hearts. Let me say this. You may wonder about the warning here, and you may say, okay, so I'm a little confused. I've said I've trusted in Jesus. I come to church on a regular basis. Are you saying I will be saved or I won't be saved? Can I lose my salvation? What is the writer of Hebrews saying? I think the writer of Hebrews is merely holding out a warning to a mixed multitude of people. Some are believers, some aren't. It's always a mixed multitude. In fact, notice how many were unbelieving in Israel. Notice this in verse 16. Who heard and yet rebelled? You can see the writer picking up an objection. Who heard and rebelled? And he says, was it not all those who left Egypt? The entire nation under Moses heard and rebelled. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a frightening and a weighty thing to grapple with. That every single person who came out of Israel fell in the wilderness, didn't enter the rest that God had for them in the promised land because they didn't believe the gospel. And that was the church. Those were the people that professed faith in the true and living God, and they did not enter now, I think what the writer is saying is that there are going to be people who depart from Jesus and do not go to heaven, even though they're members of the church. 
And maybe there's many that won't. And so these are grave warnings. And that's why he's saying, take heed, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Remember what Israel did. That was for our example. Now, I want to just emphasize here two things. One is that we know the scripture teaches that God is the one that takes away a hard heart. You're not being called to take away your own hard heart. You can't do that. It's impossible. God has to change you. God has to change me. The Lord has to take away a hard heart. Uh, Cornelius Van Til says, um, the gospel will hit every ear and be shut out until God touches the heart. Until God opens the hearts of people, they're not going to believe. Until God takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. We'll go on with hard hearts. But notice... Notice that the responsibility does lie with us to take heed. We're to examine, is my heart hard? Am I hardening my heart to the Lord? Have I decided to shut God out? Have I decided to let the gospel come to my ear and be shut out of my heart? And I think there's a couple tests we can do. Number one, we can look at Israel and we can say, what what was Israel's great manifestation of a hard heart? And this is where it gets very convicting. Israel complained. So here in this case, it wasn't um, that all the men were running off with prostitutes from Moab. Um, It wasn't that they were all making a golden calf. They did that. They did both of those things. But here, the issue from Meribah is that they complained and said, can God give us water in the wilderness? And that was the manifestation that they had hard hearts. Now, I would ask you, when you look at your situations in life and you think about your own relationship with the Lord, do you complain? I think every time that we grumble and complain about our situations in life, we are not believing that God has said, I am with you, I will be with you, I will guide you, I will be your God, I have you where I want you. You know, one of the most amazing things about Joseph, who suffered so much in prison, you know, his brothers sell him into slavery, and then he rises up, and then Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him, and he gets falsely accused and thrown into prison, and then he rises up to power again. And everywhere through that account, it says, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. And nowhere did Joseph complain or grumble. And I think the point is that Joseph walked by faith. You know, there's a contrast. There's actually an amazing contrast here, and we'll come to this in just a minute, between Israel walking by unbelief and then the saints walking by faith in Hebrews 11. When you come to chapter 11 of this book, Abraham, by faith. Noah, by faith. Abel, by faith. Joseph, by faith. David, by faith. Gideon, Samson, Barak, Jephthah, by faith. Sarah, by faith, conceived Isaac when she was past the age, because she counted him who promised faithful. They walked by faith. But all of that first generation walked by unbelief. Now, so I want us to test ourselves and to say, is my heart, is my heart hard to God in the way that I respond to circumstances in life? Am I trusting him? Do I believe that he can provide? I mean, here's the God that brings water out of a rock. Can I say that one more time? I said that a few months back. He brought water out of a rock. That doesn't happen twice. In the wilderness, in the desert, God provided. That means the God who provides redemption for us through his crucified and risen son has promised to provide anything else 
that he knows we need and is good for us, and we're called to walk by faith according to his promises and trust him. I'd also say, if you are the kind of person that wants to get away from regular meetings um, and away from the ministry of the word, that that would be a sign that your heart is hard. You don't like being at meetings. You, you want to find every excuse you can. That would be a bad sign, be an unhealthy sign. Um, you don't read the scriptures. You don't read them with your spouse. You don't read them at home. You don't take time. You rush out with your busy schedule. And we're all guilty of this because we're all susceptible to hard hearts. Um, I'd go further. I'd say notice that one of the remedies and protections against a hard heart, notice this in verse 13, that the writer says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Are you seeking to exhort other believers in the faith? Are you seeing among members people who may be hardening their hearts and you have a burden to help them so that they don't, notice the words, depart from the living God? So we need each other to help diagnose this. We need each other to help meet this. The, the Christian life is not a life of isolation. It's a life of community in the body, exhorting one another daily while it's called today. We should be actively looking for others and saying, hey, you know, can I encourage you to be coming to this? How are, how are you doing? Are you reading the word? How's your prayer life? How are your burdens? Can I encourage you from the scripture? How can I pray for you? We should be actively doing that. That's what's expected of the covenant community. It's expected. And it's expected if we don't want to have hard, hard hearts and depart from the living God. God has so constituted the church and the Christian life that we live life together and are dependent on each other so that we persevere to the end in faith. And notice also that he says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The surest way to harden your heart against God is to continue on in sin you know you need to repent of, but you're unwilling to do so, and you're just going to keep doing it. You know, I'm reading a book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave by Ed Welsh, and, and he says, the, uh, you know, with sin and with idolatry, it's often like dating. You know, most people don't fall in love at first sight. Usually it's a long courtship. So it is with hardening your heart with sin. You know, you dabble with sin. You know you shouldn't be doing it. You feel guilty. Your conscience is seared. You do it again. You may repent. You may confess. You do it again. After a while, your conscience doesn't bother you so much. That's, that's a hardening of the heart. When your conscience doesn't bother you and say, I don't see anything wrong with this, and you start justifying it, then you close the Bible, then you leave church, and then you walk away from the living God. And what that means is that you were never in Christ. People that do that show that they never knew Jesus. They may have professed to have known him, but they didn't know him. Now, let me say this as seriously as I can today. Where you're going for all of eternity depends on what you do with what's being said. You are going to go to heaven or hell. You are. You may not like that. You may find that uncomfortable. You will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. You have two options. If you go to heaven, it's because you're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. A simple childlike faith. If you go to hell, it's because you want to go there because you've hardened your heart in unbelief. I want you to take this today as seriously as you have ever taken this. More seriously than anything you've ever heard from me. Today, 
you need to grapple with whether your heart is hard before the living God or not because you know what? You don't know that you're going to have tomorrow and you may wake up in hell. And if you wake up in hell, you will never get out of there. And you know what? I don't like telling people that. I don't enjoy telling you that, but it's reality. So wake up and start thinking about where you are spiritually and start thinking about eternity and stop thinking about the here and now and stop loving sin because sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Sin will deceive you all the way to hell and you'll love it and you'll fondle it and you'll treasure it and it will disappoint you in the end. It will disappoint you in the end, but Christ will never disappoint you. Christ will never disappoint you. Christ has done everything to bring you to God. Now, I want to end by focusing on the call to faith. Who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All God requires for you to have an interest in Jesus and to make it to glory is faith, saving faith. But that is not within us. That's not within us. You don't have faith inside. It's not something everybody has. George Michael was wrong. You don't just have to have faith as if it's something inside you. It's a supernatural gift of God, but you have to have it. You have to be trusting in Jesus. You have to be casting yourself on Jesus. You have to be. That's what God requires. He doesn't require that you live out a perfectly holy life. Jesus has done that. He requires that you believe his promises, that you cast yourself on Jesus, that when you sin, you go back to him, that you press on. You know, when you read the great faith chapter, those guys did a lot of things wrong. Let me say this. Gideon became an idolater at the end of his life. Samson fell to wine and women through his whole life. Um, Jephthah doubted God's promise and questioned whether God was going to give him the battle and so sacrificed his daughter. Perpetual virginity, I think. And then Barak wouldn't go to battle, so Deborah went out for him and he didn't get the victory. But those men are in the great faith chapter. So it's not... It's not Perfect living, it's trusting in Jesus. It's trusting in the promises of God. It's clinging to Christ. It's letting go of the world, letting go of sin, letting go of things that weigh you down and harden your heart and clinging to Jesus Christ by faith. Um, I think one of my favorite stories in church history is that of Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers in England. He was 15 years old. He had grown up in a Methodist church and apparently... Unconverted, he walked into a um, he walked into a a church one day, and the minister was out that Sunday. And one of the the deacons was up in the pulpit, and he didn't know what to do, didn't have a sermon, so he opened to Isaiah the prophet, and he just read over and over and over and over again. Look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Look to me. God says, look to me, all you ends of the earth and be saved. And Charles Spurgeon looked in faith at Jesus and became one of the greatest preachers the world has ever known. It is a looking at Jesus. Remember, the title of this series is We See Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, as you close here, to those of you who are members of this church, members of Bible-believing churches, are you 
Are you examining your heart? Are you hearing the voice of Jesus? Are you hardening your hearts? Are there indications, warning signs in your life that there's hardening in your heart? If there is, I want to exhort you to deal with it. I want to exhort you to return to Jesus, to sit at his feet, to get in his word. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's cyclical. The beauty of God is that he makes things real easy. If you lack faith, if you are hardening your heart, you go to the very word you are hardening your heart to, to get the faith that you need. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. When your heart is hard to the preaching of the word, you need the preaching of the word. When your heart is hard to the hearing of the word, you need to hear the word. When your heart is hard to reading the scripture, you need to read the scripture. Then I want to exhort you to be thinking about each other. Exhort one another. There's a thousand ways that that would play out in your life, in your homes, in this church. If you see people who are wandering, you have a responsibility to pursue them and exhort them. That's very clear here. Verse 13, exhort one another every day as it's called today, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then finally, I want to exhort you to be meditating on the promises. Meditate on the promises. The exceeding great promises of God. I was reading Genesis 12 to Micah and Eli last night and the promises God made to Abraham. And I said, what did God promise Abraham? And Micah said that his, that his offspring would be more than the stars in the sky. And his eyes just lit up. And there was something of the grandeur of the promise of God because of Jesus. God's promises are enormous in Jesus Christ. They are enormous, what he promises to do for his people. Finally, I want to exhort you, if you're here, if you're not a Christian, if you've never looked in faith to Jesus God says, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. He says, turn to me, come to me. Jesus says, I give you rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, turn to me, live. Why would you perish? God actually says, why would you perish? Turn, turn, turn to me and live. Come to me, find in Jesus everything that you need through his death and resurrection on the cross. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to take seriously the things that have been said today. We pray that you would not allow anyone in this place to harden their hearts. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do a great work of grace in softening the hearts of each one here. We pray that you would... Uh, that you would give us grace to exhort one another and to encourage one another. We pray, Father, that our congregation would be a congregation where faith is vibrant, where you are trusted and believed and rejoiced in and worshipped. Father, we pray that you would help us because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that we have in him. We pray that you would show us his glory and his greatness. We pray these things in his name. Amen.